The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Right, we're returning to our work in the, the book of James, and we have now spent uh, 17 weeks in the book of James, and it will be week 19 before we finish chapter 2, but we will get through chapter 2. Um, and even in an elders meeting recently, we were talking about uh, in terms of opportunities for Christmas and what kind of emphasis, and I was hoping I wouldn't land maybe at the beginning of chapter three and try to work through, let few of you become teachers and the, the tongue, but we may be in the tongue at Christmas. We'll see. Um, we'll just see what the, the providence of God in terms of timing and maybe even um, I can be persuaded toward uh, directing my attention elsewhere for a little bit. But uh, that's, that's to be determined. We're, we're pressing our way through week um, uh, 17, 18, I guess now, and uh, there may be a variety of opinions on the pacing of our work through this book. I mean, it's a short book. Why can't you just get through James? And, you know, it's the Proverbs of the New Testament. Oh, no, we're not going to go there. We're actually recognizing it's the wisdom from above that's directing us to to be perfect, complete, liking, and nothing. But even that being said, um, uh, my contribution to the nature of the conversation of our pacing is that the engagement of our um, work in this letter is that I want you to understand not only the sweep of it. So we do talk about outlines and we do talk about themes and we do talk about developments of emphasis because I want you to see how it fits together, that it's not just a, a cobbling together of really nice ideas, but there's an intentionality to it. There's a building to it. There's a, a development of the letter, but also I want you to appreciate the details of it. When we were mentioning just a little bit ago that it's not justification by faith, it is justification by faith alone, but James would qualify that justification also has works. I'm sure you could have already expressed that, but those are the things, the reason you can express that is because James drove us there. Uh, Paul takes us there. It just is one of those things where like, oh, he did, didn't he? And James says, absolutely, I did. So those are the details that we wrestle through, we work through, so we take the time to do that because ultimately the aim is discipleship. It's not just uh, to make some homiletical wowing of the book. It's to disciple one another. It's to develop and build one another up in Christ, a discipleship that informs your thoughts your hearts, and, as James would say, let's not lack in our actions. And I'm not saying that just because James has so many imperatives, so many commands, but he clearly is expressed, not only implicitly by the nature and the, the volume of his commands, but he's did it in chapter 1, he's doing it again here in chapter 2, very explicitly, that faith has action. It does things. He expects certain things. So it's not just your thoughts, it's not just your hearts, but your actions to include, as we've already mentioned, and as you're well aware, you're giving thanks in all things. Uh, we have obviously a, a national holiday, and some people might be like, well, that's the, the government's holiday or whatever, or we give thanks in all things all the time. Well, we do. And you know what? There's really good precedent for taking time to set, part, uh, set apart special days and occasions to return thanks to God, to remember things. And so I want to provoke you a little bit this morning, not only to think about the sweep, the details of James, but also how James can provoke us to Thanksgiving. Now, with that in view, some of you will remember my closing illustration of our work in James, uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, the beginning of our fifth major section, where I was uh, exhorting you to think about James declaring to us or, or exhorting us, show me your hands. And that's exactly what he's doing. That's not going to be the, the, the transformation of the icon moving forward, but it, it worked for this morning. Um, he couldn't help but to show you his hands in that image. But nevertheless, it's a staple verbal command exercised by law enforcement when engaging persons and assessing a situation. So again, listen for that command, show me your hands, and that means they want to see hands. 
For them, it's a matter of safety for themselves and for others. But for James, as we talked about, it's a command of putting the principles, the precepts, and commands of Scripture to action, to expressing a living faith, a faith that works, a faith faith that takes information that has engaged the mind, which is good. There's a cognitive engagement. It's not just, I don't know how I believe that. I just somehow it came to... No, there was a cognitive engagement. There was an affirmation of truth that came into the mind it's been assessed and transformed, but it's been assessed by the mind. It transformed the heart. That's good. So it's not just an emotional welling up, but it has infe- it infected your inner person. So you cognitively take it in. It's infected your inner person. It's transformed you. And then it expresses itself through hands, as it were. So if we think head, heart, hands, expressed um, action, as it were. So if our aim has been discipleship in our work in James, no matter if we took two weeks or 20 weeks or 300 weeks, the aim is discipleship and a discipleship that again transforms your thoughts, your hearts, but also your actions, then a mark of its success will have, um, then, then will have been successful if we've impacted all those things, not just your ability to draft an outline. I mean, that would, that would thrill me if one day you came up, even five years from now, and you're like, you know what, I've been thinking about the major sections of James and how they break down. I'd be like, that's great. You're such a wonderful person. But that's not the aim. That's a help. But the, what if you could express the primary arguments of James, how they fit together, that, again, that'd be nice. That means you heard. But, and maybe if you said, you know what, they really impacted me. Okay, good. We've got the heart. It's affected your uh, affections, your thinking, your convictions. But if we stop there, then you've basically just audited a class, right? You've potentially looked in a mirror and walked away, and that's really bad company. And it really puts you in bad company for that matter. It's the company of persons maybe such as the religious rulers who had deficient, even cowardly belief in Jesus, as we see in in John chapter 12, where we read in verses 42 to 43, nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him. And we we pause there and be like, yeah, that's great. Let's, Let's rejoice with them. They believed. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Well, that's that's not good, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory of men rather than the glory of God. Now, someone might say, oh, that was a rather specific context, and that someone would be correct. It was a very specific context, but I would say even broadly applying this example, maybe that's, maybe even that's not well suited for your conclusions, that believing with the mind and the heart are deficient if they are uh, conclusions, uh, conclusion of the chain of events, as it were. So, Maybe that's not the issue. Maybe it's too precise of a context. Maybe it's a bad example because heart or head, heart, hands, is that really the best tie-in? Well, I would say after all, these men were accused of loving the glory of God, uh, or excuse me, the glory of men over the glory of God. And I recognize that. So there's a very precise context. And I'm not going to argue over whether or not that's the best one, but what you did see was cognitive affirmation, a believing, and is that the company we want to be in? No. The company that's fearful to testify of Christ. You know what happens who, who doesn't testify of Christ? What does he say? I don't testify of you before the Father. So it puts you in very, very bad company. And so we want to be careful about that because um, we want to follow the fact that James is explicitly communicated and will continue to do so throughout his second chapter that faith or the act of believing is, again, it's useless. It's, in fact, he says, dead. And we don't really like the term dead. There's uh, a weight that comes with death. There's a final separation, and then James is saying, yes, 
And that's a, it's an unfortunate, it's a tragic word. It has a lot of grief that accompanies it, and that's the nature of your faith. It's useless, and it's in fact dead when it's not accompanied by works. So having the head knowledge is good, and, exp- and its expressed transformation or impact on the heart is indispensable, but again, it's all for naught if there are no works. Now, if this helps some of you, I know a variety of illustrations can be helpful in different contexts. Um, I'm not advocating. I probably have to qualify. Anytime I reference a movie, there's probably always a necessary qualification. I'm not endorsing it. I, don't, I couldn't tell you if it's even that good of a movie anymore. They do switch from black and white to color. That's kind of neat, whatever. But nevertheless, some of you may be familiar with the, the Wizard of Oz, but what you might not be familiar with is maybe the, the line was miscast, as it were, in view of James. And miscast in what way? Well, he had a brain. He had a heart. Arguably lacked courage, but maybe not so. It was all resolved in the end. But what he really needed was hands. Hands to put the head and heart to action through works. A course of conduct which often does require a measure of courage, as we saw with the Jewish religious leaders who believed and yet were afraid. And I think about these truths and how precious they are to us. Again, having the head, having the heart, but needing the hands. And so again, if you're thinking, where would I fall in that company? Probably wouldn't say, I'm the scarecrow. Probably not. You don't want to be proclaiming that you're, if I only had a brain. Um, Probably even don't want to be ten men with like being heartless. Definitely don't want to be the line, but maybe we find ourselves closer to the line, having a head and a heart, but lacking hands. And so we want to be delivered from that, and we need to pursue that. And so if that helps, we'll push it a little bit. And again, I think about how these truths and how, how precious they are to us, namely, again, the necessary and invaluable truth that faith without works is dead. Or again, as James will go into state even more explicitly, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, these truths press us to action, don't they? To works. But arguably, not only actions and works, but as I hope you'll see by the end of the day, to thanksgiving. So again, head to heart to hands, pushing us to work, pushing us to action, pushing us to put our faith on display. And part of that will be expressing ourselves before God in thanksgiving. But as many of you know, this book and the fifth major section, and again, you're thinking, He said, fifth major section, that's chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You're doing good. The fifth major section, it produced a lot of um, uh, challenges for people, hasn't it? Um, It's produced uh, nothing short of um, uh, maybe a lack of uh, enthusiastic thanksgiving for different people in history, especially the Protestant Reformation leader, Martin Luther. He struggled, of all places, in James to give thanks probably here. He would see me cite maybe James 2.24 and be like, you know, was that really necessary? I don't even know if the illustrations were necessary, but really 2.24? You're going to draw that out? You're not even going there today? You're going to go there today? Yeah, I think it's helpful. But, you know, I don't believe that he necessarily had a problem with the book as a whole. I think that can be a misnomer that um, he hated the book of James, thought it was useless. Um, I think it was a matter of proportionate usefulness as, in his valuation, which I would say was deficient, but in terms of his uh, failing to see and appreciate it in its proper entirety. But I don't think he had a problem with the book as a whole, but most certainly, though, he did take an issue with the second half of chapter two. He would have really struggled with our call, not only to, to works, he would appreciate it, but still a little bit of measure of tension, but to say give thanks here, I don't know, that's going to be hard. And I'm not going to rescue that from, that from that struggle, 
but rather I want you to see that that's a tension that we need not have ourselves. And I think that maybe he didn't have as much as he thought he had. Now, in view of how we addressed this matter last week, uh, Luther, again, also plainly saw an elephant in the room. So I'm, I don't know if you remember, it was a belabored, long, unnecessary illustration with an elephant in the room, etc. And I said, you know what, I don't want to go after James versus Paul, because really it would be Paul versus James, because James wrote first, and James was a pillar of the church, and James is who Paul deferred to with his gospel. But that aside, we're not going to go there because we don't need to. We don't read Romans 3 and 4 and say, well, hmm, what does James say? I think we deserve the, James deserves the courtesy to say, this is what I'm saying. And so I said, let's escort the elephant out of the room. But I don't think Luther would have been satisfied with that. He would have seen, no, we can't just escort it out because there's a potential for destruction. Uh, destruction that would crumble precious and foundational truths, particularly justification by faith alone, as clearly expressed in Paul's letters. Again, because of verse 24 especially, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And he identified that destructive elephant, again, as the discourse in faith and works here, which doubtlessly embodied his less than esteemed view of James's letter, which this is the, usually the, the last part gets cited, but I wanted to cite it a little bit more in context so that you could see he wasn't just dismissing it altogether. He's dismissing it in proportion, which I would say, if you were here for introductions one, two, three, and four, was it four parts? Maybe, and if you've walked through chapter one, if you've walked through chapter two, you'd say, mm, no, there is some magnificent Christology here. I'm sorry you missed it. Nevertheless, he states St. John's gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially those to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's epistles, or epi epistle, should have been epistles. These are the books which show to thee Christ. Therefore, in view of that, They've shown us Christ. St. James' epistle is a perfect straw epistle compared with them. Again, that's a comparison because they showed Christ. Did James show Christ? Did he? Absolutely. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. If we're playing the how many times does Christ appear in the, the book explicitly, but then we would say that James echoes the voice and the tone and even the message of Christ probably and proportionately, certainly more than any other New Testament epistle. He sounds like, what is that? Was that Jesus on the phone? No, it was James. They just sound alike. And so I would say he missed that, and that's unfortunate. Now, that being said, I'm also no master student of Martin Luther. Um, that probably surprises you. But nevertheless, not a master student of Martin Luther, but I'm quite sure he's, it's, it's more complicated than it's often uh, posited before us. You know, he kept James in his copies of the scriptures. So if he thought James didn't fit, then it was rather disingenuous not to toss it out. But he kept it there, even maybe under measure of... Uh, protest. Um, but uh, he's a Protestant. Ah, never mind. Um, nevertheless, he kept James in the script, copies of the scriptures, apparently removed this statement from later editions of this preface to the New Testament, so maybe softened up. I don't know. Also, while we would likely not be close friends um, for a variety of reasons, he did much good, and for that I am thankful. But even so, like many others, Luther does not appear to have missed the clear echo of Christ throughout, or excuse me, Luther does appear to have missed the clear echo of Christ throughout James and the crucial nature of how the matter of faith and works must be understood as expressed by James. He missed that, and that's unfortunate because he was a very good student, did a lot of excellent things that we are, are indebted to. And I want to press that because Luther, again, clearly understood the principles James is firmly pressing us to in his second chapter. Um, we see as much from his introduction to Romans, to, to Luther's introduction to Romans. He understood what James said, and he actually affirmed it. 
He just didn't realize he was affirming it. And let's hear Luther in his own words. In his own introduction to the book of Romans, you know, by the Apostle Paul, you know, the, the part that is supposed to be in conflict with James, you know, the one that talks about justification by faith alone and expects works, that Romans. He states the following. Faith, however, is a divine work in us. It changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. It kills the old Adam and makes altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and powers, and it brings with it the Holy Ghost. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith, and so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It sounds like he really likes James. He just doesn't realize it. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. You'd think he's introducing James. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and know neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man would stake his life on it a thousand times. This confidence in God's grace and knowledge of it make men glad and bold and happy in dealing with God and all his creatures. And this is the work of the Holy Ghost in faith. Hence, a man is ready and glad without compulsion to do good to everyone, to serve everyone, to suffer everything and love and praise to God who has shown him this grace. And thus, it is impossible, in his own words, thus is it impossible to separate works from faith. Quite as impossible as to separate heat and light fires. Beware, therefore, of your own false notions and of the idle talkers who would be wise enough to make decisions about faith and good works and yet are the greatest fools. Pray God to work faith in you, else you will remain forever without faith, whatever you think or do. He does not sound like a man who would have a problem with James. I think he realizes he captures what Paul teaches. I will 100% affirm that. And in that, we're affirming that Paul is also affirming what James has already taught. And yet the precise nature and high demands of James's language about faith and works appears to have been just enough to have frustrated Luther and many others. And that in and itself should be, I would say, a cautionary tale for us. Again, he was a brilliant man who loved the scriptures, fought for the integrity of the church. He missed some things along the way, and now having 500 years of hindsight, it's given us quite an advantage in the area. So don't be like, <laughs> I, would have, I would have read James and totally gotten this. Probably not, not in that context. You would have probably wrestled with it, and you probably would have been like, you know what, Luther's a really excellent teacher, because who disciples you will who impact you. Your culture and your time will impact you, and it's really hard. Are those good hermeneutic principles? No, but the fact is we are trapped in time and space, and then we are influenced by persons and experiences. And so 500 years of hindsight doesn't give us the, the, the ability to be like, silly Luther. But we can say, ah, I just wish that he had read that more introduction more carefully because I think he would have really appreciated the book of James even more. And I think we'd be, again, rather naive to think that we are not missing something ourselves along the way. I don't know what we're missing. I wish we did. Uh, it'd be really, really helpful to know that's where we're being silly. That's where we're writing introductions to things in such a way so as to maybe somebody later be like, hmm, they, they missed it. There was such value there. And they saw it elsewhere, but they just, mm, they missed it. So if, if nothing else, while we wrestle through these things, 
maybe instead of trying to figure out James versus Paul, maybe it needs to be me versus mirror and me versus my own presuppositions and, and proud conclusions. It's really tough. And again, if good men like this struggled, we're going to struggle too. But that being said, no conflict. And we've seen it in their own words. So with all these matters in view, I want to press us toward a place of thanksgiving today and throughout this week. And I'm aiming for this because it's a principal emphasis that we're sharing in as, again, as a nation and with our families and loved ones this week. But even more than this, as believers, thanksgiving is always to be our shared disposition. And I want you to see that while this portion of James has been challenging for many, it should press us to thanksgiving. And then after advancing through the middle portion of this fifth major section, verses 18 through 20, which is where our attention will be for a good portion of our time in just a moment, I want to take our remaining time and consider the range of uncontested, unambiguous, and magnificent matters of truth that we've worked through to our present in our study of James to press us to further thanksgiving. So let's now read the, the fifth major section of James together before narrowing our attention to verses 18 to 20 and then expanding quite broadly by considering the whole of chapters 1 and 2 for matters of thanksgiving. So James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Um, follow along in your copy or on the screen here. James writes, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish man, or you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, as I mentioned, we're narrowing our focus to 2, 18 to 20 uh, before giving a larger view to more of James's, uh, for more, more James for purposes of Thanksgiving. But in narrowing our focus, I want to frame how this portion of the text fits into the argument of this fifth major section. So as we covered last week, this section begins a little differently than most of James's major section as it opens with a question. Usually we're looking for a nominative direct address with accompanying by usually specifically brother um, directing us with the imperative of action. So uh, brothers, do this. Brothers, do this. But this time it's a question. And in this case, it actually happens to be a pair of questions. The first question frames the first portion of the text, verses 15 through 17. The second question frames the third portion of the text, verses 21 um, through 26. And between these two engagements with the opening pair of questions comes our passage today in verses 18 through 20. So again, question one, 
First section answers that question. Question two, third section answers that question. Between them is our bridge text, the, 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 the joining of the two to develop the argument a little bit further. So again, it's a bridging portion of the text that advances James's argument. It's less directly concerned with the first or second questions. It does allude to them. It does build on them. It does draw from them. But it also distinguishes itself by keeping the pattern of a similar but different conclusion to the larger argument that James is developing. So the first section concludes with, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. That's question and then build out, final answer. It's dead by itself. The third section concludes with the same expressed intensity, just more fully developed. So you have the question, you have more uh, rounded out, developed with Abraham and Rahab, and then final answer, very like nature, very similar to the same as the first section. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So he has a question. What use is it? It's useless because it's dead. Can this faith save? No, it cannot save because it's dead. But as I mentioned, the bridge passage concludes in a similar way, uh, but different, as it were. He states, for its conclusion, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, plainly, the message, uh, in essence, remains the same. A workless faith is a useless faith. If you have uh, maybe a copy of the King James, um, some of their uh, some different textual matters, maybe some others as well, um, will have that's also dead here. It appears that useless is the better fit. I'm good with that. He's already expressed it's dead. It's dead. And here he's peppering in the middle. It's useless. I think he's driving that same focus, but just with the less intensity, he's not answering one of the questions. He's bridging. But while it does like the intensity of expressing such faith as dead, um, nevertheless, it's similar, but different. So it's dead. It's useless. It's dead. And it's bridging that larger argument. Now, another distinction of this portion of the text is that it's a more direct line of argument. It's not an argument framed by way of illustration or example, such as we saw in the first section where love for neighbor was effectively mocked by blessing with words while scorning with actions. Be warmed and be filled as you walk by and they're shivering and hungry. And that was a very clear, very um, rather powerful, direct illustration that built out that kind of faith is useless. Why is it useless? Because it's dead. And it's also not like the historic example that we're going to see next week with Abraham and Rahab, another very powerful coupling of illustrations. Abraham is obviously uh, well-known, well-respected, and to draw from two high points, he believed in terms of the, the time in which God cut the covenant with him, or right before that, and then also the offering of Isaac, in which he was interrupted. We spoke to that last week in, in our um, class in the covenants. And then Rahab, well-known for her even very small window and influence throughout the scriptures. And so those weighty illustrations. So you have um, created illustration, historic illustration to build out those. But in this bridge section, it's different. He doesn't give illustrations. It's more of, again, a direct line of argumentation that James not only advances his point, but naturally takes us to the final section where he delivers that, that arguably heavier, heavier theological punch. So... Question, illustration, final point, a bridge, just very direct line of argument that's taken a little bit from the first part, a little bit from the last part, getting us to that third part, the third part, Abraham and Rahab, and really drives home his emphasis. So you can see um, points of connection there. You can see this transition developing as verse 18 has a more natural association also with the first section, focusing on demonstrable works that must accompany faith. 
And then you also see in verse 19 the introduction of the language of believing, which expresses itself by more than just cognitive affirmation. And so this is the first point in time in which James is explicitly within this section talking about believing, and he's setting us up for a lot of talk about believing and the nature of believing and that it's a working, living faith. So again, verse 18, we saw, again, show me your works, like tending to a brother or sister in need, and thereby demonstrating the living faith is useful. Verse 19, believing demonstrates itself with clear action, like that of Abraham offering Isaac and Rahab caring for the spies, exemplifying a faith that justifies and thereby a faith that saves. Then this bridge section section finishes with its own conclusion, again affirming that faith without works is useless. Now, let's narrow our focus to the particulars of this section. As we, and as we do, we'll immediately engage a, a textual challenge, as it were. However, um, I want to first state that I'm confident that Frank is uh, he's prepared to think and wrestle through these challenges. You are, right? You're, you're prepared to wrestle through that. Um, and I'll be frank. This is hard matter to resolve. Now, I need to wait a moment here. Who is Frank and I am, 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 am I he? No, I'm me and you're Frank. I'm just being Frank, but not you. Right? <laughs> now, there's going to be someone out there in internet land that will maybe, by happen circumstance or just pure accident, maybe stumble across the audio of this. And they're not going to know what just happened. They're not going to have any idea that I'm talking to Frank about me being Frank, but I'm not Frank. I'm just speaking frankly. And there's something to be said for, we have to be really careful with language. Sometimes it gets very confusing. And sometimes we, we do that even with pronouns. And so last week when Psalm 105 was up on the screen, I, was, you pro- I hope you weren't cringing when reading the scriptures. I, but I, I looked at it and I thought, mm, I missed some, the, 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 the way I, I pasted in some font changes and there's capitalizations that are off. And sometimes I thought, oh, I missed that. Fixed it this week. And then sometimes you'll have pronouns woven in there with talking about God and then talking about Moses. And you're like, capital U? Is it Moses? Is it Yahweh? And we have to be very careful, very intentional. Who are we, who's talking here? And again, somebody stumbling on internet land, they might not have the context of me looking at Pastor Frank and engaging him by name while also expressing the manner of engagement by way of me being Frank. Well, and these pronouns and how do we understand these things? Well, James wasn't playing around with words. He wasn't playing around with structures to drive a point home, but he was creating an oratory engagement for the purposes of making a point. However, like the person who lacks the fuller context of me speaking directly to Pastor Frank, so also we lack helpful details ourselves of the structural context here, namely where to end those quotation marks. And you might think, what does that matter? Well, it actually kind of helps. It's a decision that will not do irreparable harm to the text, but it can change how we yeah, uh, how the argument's expressed and how we understand that. So as you see, uh, the Legacy Standard Bible, the NASB, they extend the quotation through the whole of verse 18. You're like, but that's not how you had it in our text. It's not. I actually bumped them back a little bit out of, I'm persuaded they should be bumped back, you know, like the ESV and the Net Bible did. And we're trying to figure this out because we're trying to figure out how far is James giving this uh, proposed argument Did it stop here, and then he responds, or does it go here, and then he responds? Is it the biggest deal in the world? Not necessarily, but it does help us wrestle through and think through the argument and the flow of it. And again, the reason for these distinctions are not that we have 
Uh, it's not bad translations. It's not like, oh, no, I have to throw my Bible out or I have to get the white out again. Don't Put the white out away. Don't worry about it. It's the fact is we don't have quotation marks in the original text, and we have to supply them ourselves. We make the best effort we can. But where you put them determines how James is presenting someone else's argument and when he begins his response. And speaking to this challenge, it was encouraging that someone else found it challenging, namely Douglas Moo, who stated, we will have to rest content with accepting the interpretation that has the fewest difficulties. Welcome to my world. Um, But which interpretation this might be is, as one might expect, a very subjective decision. And by this, he also means the nature of who is purported to be speaking, the framing of their argument, because it's not simply, well, someone says this and someone else says that. It's, it's more precise than that. So while a reasonably complicated matter argued to be one of the most challenging in the book, which thankfully, because if we get over this little hill, we're good. We're going to coast, I think. Um, the core principle is plain enough. It's one that we've been emphatically pressing. It's the one that James has been very clearly pressing, namely that you cannot express genuine faith apart from works. That's what he's getting at. It's just how does he articulate it? And I think that it's helpful for our general engagement to just to say, you know what? We get it. It's, it's, it's the larger argument. It's the bigger picture. Okay, that's fine, and that's a good place to land. But in the context of teaching, I think it's my responsibility to press myself beyond what's acceptably helpful to what's as close to best as I can come for you. And to that end, I found Craig Blomberg and Miriam Camel's shared conclusion really most helpful. And in their commentary, they argued that perhaps it was James restating an opponent's argument. And so James is making his argument, and now he's detaching and saying, this is an argument that's been proposed. And that helps us, and then you might be like, why does that matter? What well, helps us with the use and the eyes and who's responding, who has faith and who has works. And he's effectively stating back to his opponents, you, the opponent who claims to have faith with no evidentiary works, and I, being James, am affirming that, yes, I have evidentiary works. And so you say you have faith and I have works, and that's correct. Um, he's not saying I, James, have faith and you have works. Otherwise, you've reversed the argument. It doesn't make sense anymore. Don't worry if you're not following. We'll pick back up. Um, But again, it seems like a silly thing to wrestle with, but for what it's worth, this conclusion seems to do the best job in keeping the pronouns in order and the flow of argument consistent. So that stated, let's get back to how this illustrative confrontation began. James has just affirmed his conclusion to the first question. That's how we got here. How did we get here? We got here by James 2.14, where he states, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? To which he answered by building out a dramatic image of serving with lips, rejecting with deeds, and thereby concluding, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. And then immediately after this conclusion, we have a firm contrast now. But, ah, so somebody's taking his, his developed argument, what he's been building out, that it's useless, and he's been building it, and he says, ah, it's, it's useless because it's dead, but someone's going to say this. And so he's setting up a contrarian position to fill out his argument. And then comes that confrontation from the one who purports to have faith absent of works. So they're basically saying, yeah, I follow what you said, James, but I have faith. You have works. You know, that work, it's fine because I have faith. You you can have works. But creating a clear dividing between the two. And you can't create a division between the two. You can't say, well, you know, this is how I live my faith out. It's how you live your faith out. I believe these things. So recognizing this clear distinction between himself and his theological opponent, James now responds, okay, 
you, you have faith and I have works. That's we're, Categorically, we're going to put each other. Gotcha. I understand whose team we're on. I understand where we're falling on the field here, as it were. And so let's play this out. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay? What has he just done? James is calling out the one who claims to have faith alone. And as James does this, he's effectively pressing his opponent and stating, as it were, show what you cannot without referencing what you said is not necessary. You can't. You show me what you don't have by what you don't think is necessary. And I'll show you what I can by what is indispensable as my faith has works. He's basically drawing out the, faith, the, the fact that you say you have faith. That's wonderful. Prove it. Well, I can't. My faith has works. Here they are. So again, he's pressing them to their own reasonable conclusion. James has come back to his charge as it were, to, he's basically saying, show me your hands. Show me your hands. Why? Because he wants to know where are the calluses from your labor. You say you have faith. Where's your works? Where are the tools of your service? Where are the works of your faith? And if one responds, I cannot show you my hands, but I will recite you my creeds. I'll tell you about the great testimonies of the faith. I will wow you with doctrinal statements labored over for the clearest articulations of truths. To which I can imagine James responding, tell you what, I've shown you my hands, you've seen my hands, now watch my hands. Well done. You've recited creeds. Bravo. You've told me and wowed me with theological excellence. You've delivered us from what Moo said sometimes hard to wrestle through. This is my faith at work again. It's correcting you. It's shaming you. It's reminding you that that's empty. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, do not misread James here. He is not endorsing this uninformed pragmatism. Now, I don't get it, but I'm doing it. <laughs> No, you don't, and you're not, actually, either. Um, it's not some uninformed pragmatism any more than a, you can think of a baker celebrating a warm cake prepared by a child with no recipe. It's, it's not going to be good. Uh, the, your, your mama might say, oh, thank you, it's great. I'm not going to say she's lying. She's just not telling the truth. Um, it's a, it's a, a well-intended uh, well warm lump of nastiness. It, it doesn't work. So that's not the case, rather he's rebuking a skillfully executed recipe that all the ingredients were just right. They were executed perfectly, step by step by step, and they put it in the oven and they didn't turn the oven on. So we don't leave one failure to simply embrace another. It's not that, well, you know, well intended and worked really hard, or excellent execution just didn't finish it. They're both really nasty and both ineffective. And so don't say, well, you know, you got those folks in the towers, and then you got us hard workers. No, you got folks that labor in the tower, and then they come down and they work hard. And then you got folks that are somewhere in between, and we're all in this together. It's good to affirm such matters as the truth that, quote, God is one, James affirms here. We certainly would affirm and see it being explicitly expressed in a range of passages. And so he's not mocking completely in the sense of, I do think there's a measure of tongue-in-cheek and then a little bit of a, he believed that God is one, bravo, well done. 
But that's that is good, right? We would affirm that. You know, you go to First Corinthians chapter eight, verses four to six. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is one, not uh, there is no god but one. Yes, that's good. We're affirming that. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things, um, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so James isn't mocking theological affirmations. That's good truth, right? Or maybe we could draw from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as also... We were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Or maybe we could even affirm from 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. And so maybe that's what James is affirming. He's saying, yes, you believe that. That's good because there's a lot of theological truths that are not only rooted in that, but are developed through that. And that's, that's good. But... We're mindful of the historical context. These letters were not written yet. And even if they had been, it might appear to be a more obscure matter to draw from, from his readers because some of you are like, why would he draw from that? Clearly he's drawing from the great Shema because we're mindful what would have been uniquely precious to these readers who he has described as among the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. These were Jewish believers or Jewish believers or those who claim to be in Christ. They, were, uh, they well may have even continued the practice of reciting the great Shema no less than twice a day. And so they would hear the echo of, when you say God is one, you're doing well, they'd say yes, because daily it's hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. So James is not simply, but again, he wasn't just simply drawing on a sentimental passage, but one that had, was a foundational element of theology that a faithful Jew would have intimately known and affirmed as believing. So it's not just, oh yeah, that New Testament builds that out. No, he's drawing, he knows his audience. He knows this is precious to them. He knows that they appreciate the, the foundational affirmation that they recite every day of this precious truth. And he's not mocking it and peeking at, uh, uh, picking at it, but he's saying, you believe that God is one. You can affirm that foundational truth. That's good. And so this was a piercing but necessary blow because he doesn't just say, that's good. He goes, that's good, and the demons affirm as much. So it's not good enough. To Jewish men and women who daily recited a beloved foundational truth about God, you believe that God is one, you do well, he now states again, the demons also believe and shudder. Your theology is as solid and potentially as impactful as that which is possessed by fallen angels who have no standing in judgment and will forever suffer a just torment. That's a little deflating. But it's only deflating if that's where it stops. And that's where James, he's not, you know, Francis Schaeffer, I, I can't, I, I, I'm sure somebody would be like, well, you endorse everything. No, I'm not endorsing everything about anybody, not even myself. But nevertheless, he would, for in his evangelistic patterns, he would take people to their logical extremes and show them, oh, just how hopeless are you? Well, you're pretty outstandingly hopeless, but here's hope. And James is a little doing, doing that a little bit in the sense that these are good truths, but mm, they can't be left here. You leave them here, not in really good company. There has to be something more. So your faith, if it goes no further than cognitive affirmations and deep thoughts and even affirmed convictions, but has no works, it's useless. 
because it's dead. Now, I'm confident you've gotten your hands around this. This is not overly complicated, but I'll briefly press it a bit more, citing just a few passages where we see this truth played out, namely demons expressing that which they believe to be true, and they're right. So we see in Mark 1:34, and Jesus healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Okay, more than some people. Luke chapter 4, 30, 30, 35, and then skipping down to, to verse 41. And in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? It certainly knows the nature of their relationship. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked it, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, it came out of him without doing him any harm. And demons also were coming out of many of shouting and saying, You're the Son of God. But rebuking them, he was not allowing them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. So here we have, again, demons expressing that which they believe to be true. And you don't need to be rattled or confused when you run into somebody in an evangelistic context and they start telling you that, yes, Jesus Christ is the, the incarnate Son of God. And he died for the sins of... And then he's raised again, and they start citing things back. You're like, well, they got the formula. Maybe they do believe, and you realize, but they don't believe. It's because, you know what, the demons believe also. It's not a matter of cognitive information. Now, cognitive information is really important because we don't just say, I have faith, and I'm going to put it to work. So I just don't know what I have faith in. We're not skipping steps, but we're also not stopping. So the demons had a reasonable response, excuse me, um, so demons expressing that which they believed to be true, and not only were they right, but they had a more reasonable response maybe than even some of James's opponents. Because at least they shuddered. They knew, oh, this is the one that's coming to exercise holy and righteous judgment toward us, and he will indeed destroy us. But it won't be a uh, destruction so as to end our existence. It will be a forever torment. And they shuddered. They were unable to restrain the weight of fear that truth bore down on them, even if they hated it. So how peculiar... Really, no, how terrible to be in the company of the natural or even supernatural who believe truth, because the demons believed. It wasn't like they understood these things. They believed truth, but to no benefit. How terrifying to, to take one stand in the face of James and say, I have faith and you have for works, and that's just fine by me. You know, I have what I have, you got your works. It's really no wonder that James responds now with, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, you empty-headed buffoon, smoothing James out a little bit, that faith without works is useless? And he's leaning here, he's kind of leaning in here and asking, do you not get it? Do you not understand? Will you not understand? Faith without works is useless. And he's now plainly alluded to, but will go on to explicitly make clear, faith without works will not save. And it's here that James is transitioning to unpacking the second question's answer. When he asks, remember the beginning of this? Can that faith save him? That was question number two that he's going to develop in the third section. He's setting us up for that. No, it can't save. The implicit answer is woven into the question. No, no, it cannot. And as it appeared to be for Martin Luther and likely for many others, it's going to feel like James has maybe gotten a little out of balance with his emphasis on works, especially when he pauses to make a rather bold statement, such as we've already alluded to in verse 24, where he states, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
all of a sudden now you just you're you're feeling awkward. You're taking your Reformation Party banners down and be like, uh-oh, I had sola fide. Is it, is it still okay? He's not fighting that. He's just giving it the clarity that's implicitly there. And we know that he's not out of balance. Rather, he's pressing a necessary point of argument that a living faith is a working faith. And just as he begins the second half press, or perhaps in the, the language of basketball, um, he implements his full court press, aggressively defending on both sides of the court, giving no reprieve to his opponent. He sets us up with a little wordplay that we miss in English. Again, not because our English translations are deficient. It's just sometimes some things that sound similar or look similar, you just can't carry that over, and that's okay. And so we occasionally miss those tiny little details, but then we draw them back out. And so here you see um, the verse provided for you once more, and you can see um, on the screen that he has two words that look a little similar to us, but maybe not that similar. But to a Greek reader, they're quite similar, having the same root. He's effectively putting works and workless side by side. James is stating that faith without works is workless. And you're probably thinking, yes, that's exactly what that means. Without works is workless. And James says, yes, you're getting it. Workless is workless and workless is useless and such is the nature of faith because without works because it's useless. He's kind of playing with words to push us here. It's workless. doesn't do anything. It's ineffective. Now, what is relatively straightforward can still be challenging at times. And while I know there's certainly a, a better way to express this, um, nevertheless, maybe this will help you. It, it helps me. I think about this language of believing and ineffectual believing and who believes and when they believed and when it impacts them and how do we understand that? And then you get to Abraham and he's justified here and he, James says, oh, but he was, it was perfected, that faith was perfected over here. And we're like, wait, James is decades apart, James. And then you're like, well, when did Rahab, did she hear 40 years ago or did she hear five minutes ago? So there's a spectrum as it were. And there's again, probably a better way to express that, but it helps me for now and we'll develop this a little bit more next week. But that spectrum of believing, even believing theological truths, as it were. And if that's where we are, those who believe, and we say, yes, I can affirm, and they recite creeds and affirm truths one to another. That's really all I can, at that point, that's all we can affirm is that they believe. That's good, but that's all we can affirm. We don't really know anything else. It really, they're in the bubble as they were. Knowing that all we know is that someone believes, that it, but that doesn't give us much to work with in that moment. All we can say is believe. That's good. But then we maybe move on to, you can't stop there, because if you stop there in the process, then there's those whose company is plainly no better than that of the demons. They believe and make truthful assertions, but it's a, useful, a useless belief. It's a seed that took re root in poor soil and produces no works. And so somebody believes. That's all we know. Okay, that's good. And then we advance and we see that there's no works, then it's an empty, useless belief. That's bad. And then there are those who faith is living. It's active. It's working. Those who are in the company of James and Abraham and Rahab. And such is why we have to see believing advance from head to heart to hands. And hence why James is pressing us with, show me your hands. I want to see living faith. Because if we're at the other side of the spectrum, it's just like, blah, I don't know. They believe. It doesn't really do much. We don't know much, but I know if we keep advancing in that spectrum and they all they do is believe, mm, that's bad. 
Very bad. That, that's useless. Dead. But then we advance to works. Ah, living, active, effective. Now, here's someone perhaps a, maybe I'm familiar with this. You, you hear something like this and you get a bit exasperated, maybe fearful that you've been deficient in your understanding and even turn um, maybe how you've evangelized others and maybe stating things like, boy, you know, I thought believing was enough. You know, I, that's how I've been sharing the gospel, like believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Kind of sounded Peterish. I mean, it worked at Pentecost. Kind of thought that was enough. Well, I would agree. You're right. It is enough. You know, we have things like Romans 10, 9 and 10, beloved passage. You know, you work through the Romans road, you got to get to 10, 9 to 10. That's the end. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What does he say? You will be saved. Doesn't, so he's not answering James's question necessarily in, in the, from, from point to point in terms of can, if one has faith without works, can that faith save him? Paul's presuming that that faith does have works. And so you do believe and you're saved. For the heart a person believes, leading to righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, leading to salvation. Or you know, be encouraged by 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Okay? Be encouraged. You're, you're right in your gospel testimony. Acts 16. And after the Philippian jailer brought Paul and Silas out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So here you have... Uh, you have the two theologians, uh, Paul, who was trained in uh, excellent theology, comes to salvific faith in Christ, is discipled by our Lord, and has his gospel affirmed by no one not less than James and Peter. And then you have Silas. What's his background? Well, we know he was at the Jerusalem Council. He was a man of high esteem. He was a prophet. So if you're going to ask two guys, if you, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is, this is probably who you want, right? This is who you want on your question-answer panel for matters of understanding the gospel. And they said, what? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your house. I'm not going to dispute with that. Believe and you'll be saved. You and your house. Now, here comes the qualification that I think helps us. And I'm going to bridge it with Acts 16. I think that last passage helps us because we can see that there are plainly some implicit qualifications here. Ones that did not demand an overbearing pressing of explanation, but they are there. So thankfully it wasn't Paul, Silas, and David and me going, hey guys, hold on a second, because when you say believe, you do mean this is a salvific belief that will be accompanied by works. And there, there may be a maturing process, I recognize that, but there will be works. And when you said your whole household, he doesn't mean, don't go home and tell everybody they're saved. That means that they, thankfully, they didn't have me there. I mean, you know, maybe that was there, and Luke just is like, this is embarrassing, we're not going to include this. But there are implicit qualifications there. The most obvious one is that a single man believing does not confer salvation, salvific faith to everyone else in his house. You'll be saved, you and your household. They're not saying, like, go home, they're all saved. Woo! Congratulations. Rather, they are sharing, rather they're sharing in his belief by believing themselves will also result in their salvation. It's an implicit qualification we understand is there. Well, in a like manner, there's an also an implicit qualification that true believing will prove itself to be a believing accompanied by works. Works that may not be immediately obvious. 
We don't say someone came to faith and like, show me your hands. Well, they're awfully soft. <laughs> Doesn't look like you've done a lot of work. <laughs> five minutes, give me give five hours at least. So we're not, it may not be immediately obvious, but they will be there and they should be plainly apparent with time and maturity and maturity certainly should come. And James will go on to unpack this further in our next section with the examples of Abraham and Rahab. Now, we've finished our bridge. We're going to get to that third section, but not today. We're going to get there next week. So with our time that remains, if there is any time that remains, I'm just going to presume there is, but with what remains, I spoke a little bit earlier um, that I wanted to provoke you to thanksgiving now and told you that Luther struggled here a little bit, and that's okay. It's okay to struggle. Just the rule is, and the rule of our house is if you're going to wrestle, you don't, you don't just give up. You give up. Mm fight until the end, and that's okay. And then resolution will come. Maybe not this time, maybe next time, but it's okay to struggle. And Luther struggled here, and the Lord's made that clear to him now. I think you would have struggled to give thanksgiving here, but I hope you can say, you know what, I, how can I not give thanksgiving to God for this? And I want to provoke you also with a little bit of attention to some matters that we've already covered to remind you that James has done nothing if he has not failed or if he has failed to provoke us to thanksgiving. It's very clear there's an abundance of thanksgiving from what he's already walked us through. So James 1.1, and this will not all be equally treated, so don't worry. And this was a, a few months ago. So when we talk about the first major section, second major section, we're not even including James 1. That was introduction. James 1.1 we covered a few months ago, and when we started our work here, we, we spent a number of weeks introducing the book, and with this, we also introduced James and his readers. That's important. That's carried us through, even to today, with the great Shema. There's a reason for that. The timing of the letter, that all part of this introduction. So as we consider how we might give thanks in view of this introduction, I would remind you of James's story. And what was that? He was the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't believe. Not for a while. He persisted in unbelief until the resurrected Lord personally engaged him. And I think about the range of our stories. So we've heard most of our stories, not everybody's story, and some of us weren't available at different times, but we've heard a lot of our stories, and most of us have a, we fall somewhere on the spectrum. So there's some of us who grew up in a, a truth-rich or a truth-opportunistic homes and came to salvific faith in our early years. And for that kind of context, how can we not just pause and give thanksgiving to God? That we, we like James, can say, yes, I'm a slave of, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in God's providence, he put me in a context in which I heard truth and responded. That is a reason to pause and give thanks. Some of us grew up in a truth-rich or truth-opportunistic environment and home and only later came to faith, perhaps even conflicted by this, that the gospel was not embraced sooner. But in this way, there's a similar and precious likeness to James' story, one of having much to draw from after having your eyes opened. You don't need to go like, oh, I had so much opportunity, I didn't repent and believe earlier. Well, James, you know what? He walked with Jesus. He lived in his house. It's okay. This is all in God's hands. And in his kind providence, he drew you to himself. And for that, how can you not abound to give thanksgiving to God that you also now are a slave of, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? And some have walked longer in darkness. And it, was, it may naturally feel that years maybe were wasted and the guilt of sin compounded. But in God's good timing... You were delivered from being a slave to sin to now, again with James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, how can you not come across this introduction? And you, we don't want to be selfish when we read an introduction and think about me, 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 me. But you read it and you see, wow, how can I not give thanks to God that with James I can also affirm that I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He delivered me. 
I didn't know why he did when he did, but he did. James, same thing. He could have been one of the apostles, but that wasn't God's prescribed plan for him. It was going to be after the Lord was resurrected. And then there were James's readers who were part of the dispersion, be it the historic dispersion in which Israel was driven from their land because of persistent unbelief, or from more recent experiences of the church being pushed out of Jerusalem because of early expressions of persecution, they were now sojourners who basically they were wondering about longing for home, to whom James opens his engagement by stating um, greetings. But do you remember the nature of what greetings, how that term is more commonly translated? Rejoice. And such is the nature of the community of faith. We are a people who rejoice. And if we rejoice, then surely we also ought to abound in thanksgiving as we sojourn and long for home ourselves. And as we advanced in our studies, we worked through the first major section, spanning from chapter 1, verses 2 through 15, Foundations for Wisdom's Path to Perfection, a section that has so much to draw from, but we're going to focus on just a few items to direct our attention toward thanksgiving. First, the opening command of this letter, consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And when we first engaged that, it sounded so weird. It sounded so strange, so, so really unnatural. But now I hope it's becoming increasingly and preciously clear that yes, of course we can rejoice when we experience various trials. How can we not have a view to that command with much thanksgiving to God? Well, we need help with that. Okay, rejoice in view of the fact, knowing that the testing of your faith produces or brings about perseverance, and in your letting perseverance have its perfect work, we will be made perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So again, now how can you not be one who abounds in thanksgiving to God when we have the assurance that though our faith be ambushed and assaulted, its persevering work will accomplish something so much grander within us as we're increasingly walking in the wisdom from above and are conformed to Christ. How can you not give thanks to God? That that assault, surprise, attack, challenge to your faith is doing something. Or how about the next command in which we are to ask in faith for the wisdom we need, knowing that God provides it to us generously and without reproach. So we need wisdom. God gives wisdom. For that, we again most naturally should abound in thanksgiving to God. He's given wisdom to us, the wisdom to negotiate the, the challenges of these, uh, this life, wisdom to, to exercise our faith in a, a way that's pleasing to him and put it to work. Or consider the glorious encouragement provided in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. No commentary necessary, is there? I mean, that's magnificent. So we give thanks to God. And then we worked through a major section um, that was a bit smaller than others, uh, than most of the others. The second major section spanning from chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, the giver of life gives all good things. And here I would just ask, what does any polite person say in response to receiving a gift? Thank you. And if I need to provoke your thanksgiving to God here, then I would need but to read this small section for you. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. 
So thanksgiving to the Father of lights could not come more naturally, could it? For every good thing given, every perfect gift, to include your redemption in Christ. This brought us to the third major section of the book, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Hear, heed, and do the word. A section that spanned from the proper reception to the plain application of the word of God. And so we give thanks to God that because of his effectual work within us, we have received the implanted word which is able to save our souls. And having received it, we get to put Christ on display through our faithful application of personal discipline, love expressed through mercy, and holiness of life. So once more, for that, how can we not abound in thanksgiving to God? He's given us his word. He's worked an effectual work in us, and we can put it to action. That's a really magnificent grounds for thanksgiving to God. And from the conclusion of chapter 1, we advanced into chapter 2 and came to the fourth major section of the book, covering verses 1 through 13, governed by the royal law, a section that pressed us to exercise love for neighbors, thereby fulfilling the royal law, a law fit for those who are heirs of the kingdom chosen from this world. So as we express mercy to those in need, love for others, uh, for our fellows, the brothers and sisters in Christ, and grace to those in our sphere of influence and opportunity, we are constantly reminded that we are but doing what God in Christ has done for us. And for that, again, how can we, not fa- or how can we fail to, to not abound in thanksgiving to God? And now we've come to the fifth major section, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Living faith is a working faith. And as we've discussed, this is a very challenging portion of James for many people, but I hope less challenging for you now, though admittedly it's, uh, it's next week's portion that really focuses on the point of perceived tension. So you might think, this section's really not challenging. Well, there's always next week. It does get difficult. But it is just that, though. It is a perceived tension. And I hope you not only saw that with Luther, but I hope that you'll see that with yourself as well, that what you're affirming over here is really what you've affirmed with James as well. And I hope you'll continue to see and understand that so that, so that we don't miss the magnificent value of what James is providing for us. But still, how do we not give thanksgiving to God here? The giver of all good things has given those of us in Christ a living faith, a faith that will work and will put his perfecting work on display in us. So for that... I think we cannot but but abound in thanksgiving to God. Today, Thursday, and throughout our walk in this natural life as we sojourn, longing for home, for which also we give thanks to God, that that's the nature of our hope, our faith, which takes action. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that... You expect faith to, to have works. That's the nature of genuine belief. Uh, it's easy to say. Sometimes it's not easy to say. Sometimes it's hard to think through things and to, to affirm them to be true. But it's always easier to say than to do. And so, Lord, we want to be those who are doers of your word, even as we've affirmed in chapter 1 and continue to see built out in our uh, care for others and our care for those within the church and care for those who you've put in our providential circumstances. And so, Lord, would you find us faithful and abounding in faith expressed through works? We don't want to have a useless, dead faith. So we thank you that James has provoked and prodded and pushed us here. We thank you also that that's not in conflict with what you said anywhere else. It's not that that's an assault on grace. It's a reflection of grace in our lives. It's what we do now. We're people who work. 
We exercise our faith. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you've so worked in our hearts and will continue to work in our hearts. And we thank you also that there's such an abundance of things for which we can draw from to increase and to fill out our thanksgiving. And we could do what we just did with James when we get through three, four, and five as well. We could do that with First Peter and Second Peter, Jude, the life of Christ, the covenants, and even any other engagement with as the scriptures, Psalm 105, Psalm 106. The psalmist himself is giving thanks. Praise Yah, praise Yahweh. Hall- he's literally saying hallelujah, the praise Yah, reminding us of the works of God throughout redemptive history. So Lord, we, we recognize when you express that we're to give thanks in all things, you're just commanding us to do that which should come naturally to us. I think about uh, Paul and Silas and or really Paul and Barnabas uh, accompanied by Silas and others but talking about their leaving the Jerusalem council and they were they said that they reminded us they told us to do this one thing to remember the poor and he says that we we intended to do just that and so may that be the nature of our command to give thanks of course we intended to do just that so Lord would you be pleased to help us find us faithful not just in a moment Certainly moments have their time. There's, there's times to set apart and give special attention, but in the totality of our lives, may it be living faith that is always giving thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.